Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In the second of two episodes on extremism, media, and tech one year after the insurrection at the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021, we're going to hear from two individuals who are working to deprive the racists and violent extremists who seek to radicalize Americans and attack our democracy of funds. The Check My Ads Institute is an independent watchdog organization that seeks to reform the digital ad tech industry from inside. At its website, checkmyads.org, it says, quote, We're holding the surveillance ad tech industry accountable for abuses against advertisers and consumers and spearheading the development of a transparent, efficient, and privacy-focused digital advertising marketplace, unquote. This week, Check My Ads launched a new campaign, Defund the Insurrectionists, that seeks to cut domestic extremists off from a key source of funding for their propaganda efforts. Check My Ads wants to alert advertisers that are unwittingly funding the insurrectionists and demand ad tech companies that continue to send millions of dollars in ad revenues to extremist platforms, despite it being against their terms of service, cease their bad business practices. To learn more about the new campaign, I caught up with the team behind Check My Ads. Claire Atkin, co-founder, Check My Ads. Nandini Jami, co-founder, Check My Ads. I'm so pleased to have you both here. I would love to know the origin story of Check My Ads. Perhaps you can uh, give us the the background on on this entity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So in 2016, it goes all the way back to 2016, believe it or not, I co-founded Sleeping Giants. It was the first major social media campaign that started to alert advertisers that their ads were on Breitbart. Um, At the time, I was a marketing, uh, I was working in marketing for uh, various tech startups. And it just kind of surprised me that, you know, that no one had really pointed this out in the sort of meteoric rise of Breitbart. And so when I visited the site, this was really the first thing I noticed as a marketer that, you know, it was filled with ads. And so, so my instinct was to alert these marketers who I knew were, you know, busy running around running Google and Facebook and all sorts of ad campaigns. And they probably just weren't checking to see where their, where their ads were ending up. So I worked on this for about three years. We thought it would be around like a two week project, you know, just let the companies know, let the ad tech companies know, and someone will figure this out because this is obviously, uh, this is obviously a big deal to brands. You know, we had over 4,000 advertisers confirm with us during this time that they were blocking their ads from Breitbart. So this was really a massive shift in the way that advertisers thought about programmatic advertising. It was really the first time that they were being alerted to the fact that their ads were appearing on dangerous extremist content. So like I said, we believe that this was going to put an end to the problem just by just by letting advertisers know. Instead, what happened is that we had to just keep running this social media campaign for what I, you know, what I started to realize was going to be forever, (laughs) you know, like no one was actually solving the problem, but they were all sort of relying on sleeping giants, AKA an army of volunteers who were 
taking screenshots and putting them up on Twitter and alerting advertisers, sort of outsourcing the job of brand safety to random Twitter users, which didn't sit right with me. Um, of course, this was a entirely volunteer campaign for me in particular, for, for all of us, no one was getting paid. So it just didn't make sense to me that this massive business priority was, was being treated with so little you know, foresight or, or, or respect, or it's just the complete lack of investment in real solutions. A couple of years ago, I, uh, about three years into Sleeping Giants, um, Claire and I met, we, we met on Twitter as, as one does, and we connected, we met in real life, and we realized that we both cared about the same things. And we were both sort of I remember back when we met the first time we met, I said to Claire, you know, I don't know when Sleeping Giants is going to end. You know, I, I don't really want to do this forever. And it just surprises me that, you know, no one has solved the problem. And so Claire and I were just naturally curious marketers. We decided that we wanted to dig in and understand why this problem hadn't been solved at a systemic level yet. Um, you know, was I going to have to, after Breitbart, go target another website and then do this, you know, for another three months? And like, where does this end? Right. So Claire and I, we started to research the advertising industry. We started to talk to everyone that we could, uh, could, you know, get on a call with just to understand, just to dig into what does this ecosystem look like? Where is the problem occurring? Where are the bottlenecks? Who's, who's in charge here? What we learned shocked us. So we started a newsletter called Branded, where we decided we wanted to bring the stories of the ad tech ecosystem, what we were learning on the ground by doing our research, and bring that, bring these stories to ordinary marketers who rely on ad tech for their businesses, but don't actually know what happens to their money once it leaves their wallets. And I'll let Claire take over from here and tell you how, tell you how we started Check My Ads. And Claire, you're a marketer by background? I'm a marketer. I also have a master's in geography and, you know, just got into tech. I, uh, I used to run a consulting business helping software companies build their marketing departments. So when Nandini and I met, we were both freelancers and we were both concerned with how our industry was affecting democracy. We saw very clearly that tech companies had increasing power in a place where they didn't know what to do with it and they didn't have the ethical framework to be good citizens. So we uh, took it upon ourselves to learn as much as we could about the ad tech industry and we learned in public. So we decided to start Branded in January of 2020, right before the pandemic hit and we had a ton of stories right away about how keyword blocking was blocking the word coronavirus and therefore shutting off advertising for local news. We had uh, stories that came out about how Breitbart was using dark pool sales housing to uh, get, get advertising data and ads and money in ways that were um, less direct than what it should be within the supply chain. We just ended up not reporting because we're not journalists, we ended up talking about issues that had not been addressed at large scale before, and that attracted a ton of clients. So we first were for-profit, and we worked with Fortune 500 companies who 
sort of are at the intersection of having really big ad budgets and also who care a lot about their reputation. And they were direct with us. They would say, we don't want to be anywhere near anything that is violent, anything that is hateful or racist or xenophobic. How do we make sure that doesn't happen? Because we are still experiencing social media crises. And so we helped them check their ads. And more and more, it became obvious to us that we were having the same conversations over and over again. And that conversation went, this is hard to do because ad tech is making it tough. And we decided that we had to be for, uh, we had to be nonprofit and we had to really hold ad tech to account because the advertisers don't even have control, even though it's their money. I think for most of our listeners, they're generally aware of how the ad tech economy works uh, over, over the years. I think people have to some extent uh, figured out that you've got this sort of labyrinthine and very complex uh, you know, ecosystem of, of players with various entities at different parts of the value chain, kind of taking the pennies in different ways. Um, and that, that is underpinning uh, an alternative media ecosystem that, that many of our listeners probably don't engage with. Um, so perhaps could I ask either of you to just sort of explain that ecosystem as you see it and how it's evolved since you got started in 2016? I'll use Breitbart as an example. So Breitbart is a, you know, brands itself as a news outlet, as a uh, conservative or uh, right wing news outlet. And that in 2016, particularly at a time when no one was really, no one really grasped what was happening. They managed to enter the news ecosystem sort of submit themselves to Google and to Facebook as a news outlet and therefore access the wide readership that, you know, that they were able to get as a result of being pushed up in news algorithms. So they placed themselves next to outlets like CNN, New York Times, The Guardian, and so on. They were just another news outlet. And no one really stopped to say, well, they're not news, they're, they're disinformation. Uh, back then, you know, Steve Bannon, whose uh, strategies famously flood the zone with shit, used this as a, as a, as a mechanism for, for a sort of scooping up readership as well as, you know, essentially flooding the zone with shit so that no one would be able to tell the difference between news and, and disinformation. And he did so successfully. Now, when, and this is how it works across the ad tech ecosystem. So what you do is you submit your website to be considered for a bunch, a whole bunch of ad exchanges. And those ad exchanges were, I mean, they're just like Facebook and Google, except they're smaller. They, they don't have that, you know, that level of of power in the industry, but they do have, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of advertisers at their disposal. So, or that they're connected with. So what they, what they're trying to do on their end is trying to get in as much inventory as possible so that they can serve more ad, ads on websites, take their cut and move on with their lives. With Breitbart, they managed to get into all the ad exchanges, none of which had any criteria against disinformation. So, and, you know, that wasn't even a concept that really existed back in 2016. So Breitbart, I think, had around 35, uh, 35 ad exchanges that they were plugged into. And that automatically gave them access 
access to just massive, massive ad spends, ad budgets and, and brands. So that's why in November, 2016, I was seeing ads for like old Navy, you know, old, old Navy, of course, never would never advertise on Breitbart. Um, but they, you know, but they did and it happened without their knowledge. So really the, the crux of it is that ad exchanges that, that don't have inventory, uh, and a careful inventory vetting process have allowed thousands of Breitbarts essentially to enter the ecosystem and access an enormous, we're talking $400 billion and counting amount of money. And there are no checks and balances in place to really understand where this money is flowing, how it's flowing. Um, it's often flowing to towards anonymous LLCs. We don't even know how this money is being spent. So it is a completely dark, opaque system that is allowing create that has created a direct line from advertisers to the most extreme content on the web. Yeah, and uh, to talk numbers here, in 2017, Breitbart, who was chaired at the time by Steve Bannon, was going to make $8 million. That's what they had budgeted for. That was their expected revenue. And when Nandini and her business partner started Sleeping Giants, they, within three months, had alerted 4,000 advertisers that their ads were there. And 31 of the 34 ad exchanges that had been platforming Breitbart dropped them. So according to Steve Bannon, they lost 90% of their revenue. So we know this work works. We know that when we do bring the relationship between ad tech and disinformation to the public, things change. They lose their revenue source. So now on the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, you've got a new campaign focused on uh, the insurrectionists. So J6 defund the insurrectionists. Can you explain a little bit about uh, the motivation specifically uh, behind this and, and what you're trying to do with regard to defunding the big lie? When we worked with our client base over the last two years, we found that they were increasingly horrified at what they found when they checked their ads. And so to us, this is not a political conversation. We literally just do not think that advertisers want to be on uh, publications that promote violence, xenophobia, and racism. This is a question of brand safety more than anything. Brands also want to be safe, just like we do. We, they don't want to be sponsoring hate speech, disinformation, any of, any of the things that lead to violence. Of course. So why are they there? Why is Dan Bongino making so much money? Why is Tim Pool able to rake in millions and brag about how rich he is thanks to YouTube? Brands don't want to be there. So what we did is we identified the top six people who made the most money, we think, because of course it's an opaque industry, we can't tell, uh, who made the most money off of spreading disinformation about the big lie and about the election. And we identified that they were Dan Bongino, Charlie Kirk, Tucker Carlson and Fox News, Glenn Beck and The Blaze, Steve Bannon and his podcast War Room, and Tim Poole on YouTube. So we're calling them the J6 sex. And those are the insurrectionists who we believe are no-brainers for getting dropped from ad exchanges. 
We know that advertisers don't want to be there. And we think that it's bad for society too. So we're letting everyone know who exactly of the ad exchanges are still funding these insurrectionists so that those ad exchanges have to answer publicly for their relationship with these people. Are you able to name some names right now? Uh, Who are the ad exchanges that we should hold to account here? We're using some of the same tactics that we started using at Sleeping Giants. Back in 2016, we started contacting advertisers, but now, of course, we know that it's really the ad exchanges we need to be targeting. So we're essentially enabling the public to reach out directly to ad exchanges. Um, and we're going to be teaching them about what those are because the average the average person doesn't know how, how ad tech works and um, and why would they? But some of the some of the companies that we are going to be educating the public on are OpenX. That's the one that we reached out to yesterday. Um, Index Exchange, Pubmatic is a really big one. Pubmatic works with a lot of disinformation and hate groups, um, hate outlets. Yahoo, uh, Amazon, MediaNet, Magnite is a really big one. So, so w- there's a couple of names in particular that keep coming up over and over again. There's just dozens and dozens of other middlemen and other smaller companies, and and we hope to start bringing them into the conversation as well. So some of those names, of course, may be uh, unknown to most listeners here, but some of them are, you know, the big guys, uh, Amazon, um, you mentioned, and of course, uh, I assume uh, Google and its, uh, uh, you know, ad tech platform are also uh, a mm-hmm. part of this problem uh, to some extent. What response have you had from these companies? Um, do they know what they're getting up to? Um, are they responsive to you generally? At this point, you're a known quantity on some level. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine they're happy when they receive an email from me. I, I, try, I try to keep the dialogue open. I have been emailing and contacting these companies for years and I have a good sense of where each of them stands and what their sort of tolerance level for pressure is. They, they know what they're doing. Um, and usually some, you know, it's, it's really 50, 50. Sometimes I'm able to get them to act quickly in private and not really turn up the pressure, but for others, it's been, you know, if I don't hear back from them, if they're not really moving on what I believe is a pretty dangerous outlet, I will take that to the public and start to, you know, put that added pressure on them. You know, it's, it's not like I'm showing up and just saying, you know, here's what I want you to do, but you know, they have their supply policies online. I'm just citing their own policies. Uh, and, and a lot of them have added language around disinformation over the past few years. A lot of them have language that specifically says we do not monetize content that uh, contains misleading narratives or promotes or incites uh, harassment, abuse. So, you know, previously it was the language, you know, a few years ago would have stopped at violence, but that now has changed and and ad exchanges have been forced to evolve their standards. So what we're now doing is well, you have these standards in place and, you know, here's the evidence that these publications are violating them. Now you're aware, what are you going to do about it? It seems like so much of the effort around 
dealing with this information, harassment, hate speech isn't just getting these various actors to enforce their own policies, the policies that they've already stated. It's like you go to market and you say, I'm going to sell you something amazing. And then everyone says, great. All the advertisers like, okay, thank God. Finally, I found an ad exchange that is going to keep me safe and give me scale and give me the right CPMs and the right ROI on my campaign. And then they just don't. Like you just got to wonder about their marketing ethics because they're just, they're turning around and they're putting your ads in some of the most dangerous locations on the web. And I mean, dangerous for the public. I mean, dangerous for our communities. And I mean, dangerous for brands against what they say on their website. To me, as a marketer, I would be, I'd be infuriated. One of the companies that I came across was OpenWeb. OpenWeb is a commenting platform, like an ad, ad fund, what is it? Ad enabled commenting platform. So it's kind of like Discuss. And they, in July or June 2020, rebranded right around the time of the Facebook ad boycott, specifically made their USP, their marketing, their core marketing proposition around ending the, the crisis of toxicity, which I thought was some pretty interesting language because I had, I had seen them in my research coming up on a whole lot of disinformation websites. So one day, you know, we sat down and really looked at who they're working with and the, the list was just unbelievable. I mean, this company has made, has just completely retooled their messaging around being an alternative to that toxic platform called Facebook. We are saving, you know, we're saving discourse. We are against bullying, against harassment, against abuse. This is, this is what they're going out and telling the world. And then in real life, we found them working with uh, Revolver News, that's a white nationalist uh, outlet run by Darren Beatty, who used to work for Trump as a speechwriter. Um, that guy is always talking about white genocide and, and has all sorts of conspiracy theories under his belt. Um, the Post Millennial, Canada Free Press, we found them working with uh, Steve Gruber, Wayne Dupree. These are all extremely toxic disinformation mongers. So we, we called them out. We wrote a branded on it and we, we called them out and within days they had removed all of them. They don't really have an argument against what we're saying. You know, they're just kind of doing it until they get caught. One of the things that we're seeing at the moment is efforts, of course, to build social platforms, media platforms that satisfy the far right um, and that are less concerned with the safety of the speech that they host. and. I just wonder, uh, to to some extent, do you believe, based on your experience, uh, attempting to essentially curtail the economic potential of this market, that that market will succeed in the next few years? Yeah, they have every right to build their own home and make a place for themselves in the world. And advertisers have every right to stay the hell away from it. And that's really what we're fighting for here uh, is the right to choose whether or not to be in places that are antithetical to your brand values. We think it is our hypothesis after years of experience and hundreds of conversations with hundreds of companies that 
they're going to struggle with their business model. It's not just us who says that. I mean, Steve Bannon himself said, and I quote exactly, without ads, there's no economic model. You two are putting yourself in harm's way. Uh, you're, you're, you're not making friends necessarily with some, some individuals who are, are known to, to put others in harm's way who, who cross them. Just a quick word, quick question on that. How, how, are you, how do you contend with that? You know, we, uh, we launched yesterday, we launched the J6 campaign and it was like 11 o'clock Pacific time in Nandanese on the East Coast. And <laughs> we were like, it's not too late to pull this because we know that it is putting us in harm's way. We have the hate. Uh, just, just last week, the post-millennial wrote a hit piece on us calling us both ridiculous things, including pedophiles. The attacks are scary. We do the best we can. And uh, we are hoping that others will also be loud from the industry. And we, uh, we know that we have, I don't know how to quantify it, but we have an immense amount of support from inside the industry from people who just don't want to be public, but who support us privately, who support us in our research, who give us tips, who are, you know, private whistleblowers and who write to us and who, who donate to us. So yes, we are in harm's way in, in many ways, uh, but we also have far more support than haters. And we are grateful for that because uh, that ratio keeps us going. <laughs> I agree. And I'll just add that at some point we realized that we were the only people that are doing anything about this. Like nobody thinks and breathes ad tech and disinformation <laughs> more than Claire and I do. And it's very humbling. And it's also kind of what keeps us going, knowing that we have created a unique position for ourselves to be able to make real change that we have sort of earned our spot and a lot of people are counting on us to be a voice for them in the industry and across the world. So that, that support as well as that knowledge is what keeps us going every day. Where should any listener who wants to get involved go to lend their support? Thank you for asking. Our website is checkmyads.org and that's where you can become a checkmate. And if you want to support our J6 campaign in particular, go to checkmyads.org slash J6. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thanks to our panelists, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.